The reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 to 16. Suffering for doing right. Finally, all of you, have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. <coughs> for those who desire to love life and to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and to pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defence to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Maintain a good conscience, so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. Good morning, everyone. I'm the difference in height that we were talking about. Um, and I don't like that I'm going fast, because <laughs> but uh, I'm sure everyone's stories will be amazing. Um, just a little bit of backstory as well to this uh, testimony. Um, uh, so, uh, I suffer with uh, chronic depression and anxiety, I have done like my whole life. Um, and the symptoms of that, or the symptoms of either one of those, is uh, nightmares. And um, it can get as bad as like sleep paralysis, um, but more often than not, it's just like loud, stressful, vivid uh, reality, dream reality stress. Um, that means that I kind of haven't had a good sleep since the womb, um, but uh, that's how it feels anyway, because it's kind of constant. Um, but one benefit of that is that it can bring up some like nice imagery, cool imagery in my mind, which I use for uh, tattoo designs, because um, I'm a tattoo artist. And one of the biggest things in being a tattoo artist is that quite often people won't uh, bring their designs. You have to like design something for them. Um, so I've been able to like, you know, think up some some interesting things and recently um, I was designing some stuff around angel numbers and uh, angel numbers they are from like ancient Greece and it's like uh, if you see like a sequence of numbers people have put a meaning towards those and I was doing some designs around them because they're quite popular for like tattoo designs um, this is all the backstory for um, basically what happened, but um, uh, yeah, so I ended up remembering a few of them from my design time and um, they still kind of like, when it like uh, 333 comes up on like the clock or something like that, I kind of like remember it. Um, so one night, and when I was having a particularly bad uh, nightmare, um, I woke up at 4.44 in the morning um, exactly. Um, I have a bad habit of checking my phone immediately when I wake up, so that's how I know. Um, and uh, so at 444 four, four is the 
meaning of protection. And immediately I thought, God is protecting me. Whether it be like from myself and my own like bad dreams or just like a, like a nice kind of shield of protection around me during like that kind of dark time. Um, yeah, that's how I felt at the moment was that God is protecting me and that also that God wants me to know that they wants me to know that they are protecting me. Um, so uh, yeah, that's just my testimony. Um, that uh, yeah, I just wanted to share this all with you. That um, sometimes God speaks in whispers, but God will always speak to you in a way that you recognize, because um, God knows how to communicate with you, because uh, God knows your love language, um, and that's my testimony. So thanks. Uh, good morning. My name is Dermot, and I'm a member of the church here. And when Nigel asked me to share something of my life or my faith journey with you, I thought I would do so through the use of two images. Uh, and we'll see them shortly. These are two pieces of sculpture which are vastly different, but both of which have very deep resonances within me. And uh, they, they, they speak, they are reflective of my life and my, my faith journey. And some of what I say today may resonate with you uh, it may remind you how fragile we are, and I'm just warning you, there may be tender ground ahead for some of us. And I just want to acknowledge that, but I also want to be real. So, uh, here we go. Several years ago, I visited Prague, and I was walking around the grounds of Prague Castle when I came across a sculpture. And that will be our first picture, please, Abby. It's a sculpture by an artist called Yaroslav Rona, and you can see a bronze sculpture of a, a human figure weighed down by a large skull resting on its, his back. It's not exactly subtle, it's not exactly nuanced. Uh, it's a stark image, it's a sober, maybe even a sinister image, and like all works of art, it's open to a myriad projections and interpretations. And I wonder if you could take a moment and ask yourself, what does seeing that make you think, or, or even better, make you feel? Maybe you see the human condition, all of uh, life weighed down, weighed down or overshadowed by death. Maybe you see or feel the burden of grief, or some other life-crushing event or loss. Perhaps you feel for the man and without being indelicate, may I assure you, gentle viewers, having walked round the statue, the figure is indeed a man. Uh, perhaps you feel for the man unable to stand up because of this great weight of death on his back. At times, it reminds me of the famous words of the American writer Henry David Thoreau, who said, the mass of men, or to paraphrase, most men, live lives of quiet desperation. Most men live lives of quiet desperation. It's a sentiment that I think is profoundly true. As a man, as a healthcare professional, I think it is profoundly true. Most men do live lives that are a bit passionless, if not deeply unhappy. And uh, often not able to admit that even to themselves or to others. So what has this to do with my life or my faith journey? Well, briefly, to give you a bit of a backstory, I was raised in Northern Ireland in a Christian family, in a Christian community and culture. Uh, we were thoroughly evangelical with a capital E. 
and somewhat at variance with, with good evangelicalism, I actually don't remember a time as a child when I didn't believe in God and didn't believe in Jesus, so I cannot speak to a before and after conversion experience. I was raised in a world of church, Sunday school, quiet times for daily devotions, choruses, memorizing Bible verses or Bible passages, Bible class, youth fellowship, and later on, uh, home groups, the charismatic movement, and we were changing the world for Jesus. I am grateful for the good people and good intentions that shaped my life. Uh, this was the world in which I was raised, if you like, the bowl in which I was baked, and I believed. However, there was a fact that would ensure that I could not, that I would not remain in that world or fit into that world forever. I realized early on that I'm attracted to my own sex, that I'm gay, or whatever word or phrase you want to describe to use or to use to describe being attracted to one's own sex. Growing up, I never remember much being said about homosexuality, but if it was mentioned, it was invariably negative. I knew it was a very bad thing, and the messages that I received growing up in that world and in that culture was not so much that I was an abomination, but rather that I was the abomination, that God had given me over to unnatural desires, almost that God had given up on me. Scripture can be weaponized. The messages I received were deeply shaming and deeply isolating. So of course in that context I didn't want to be gay. It had huge implications for my relationship with God, with others and with myself. Most men live lives of quiet desperation. What we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves matters. It matters enormously. It has profound implications for how we live our lives, for how we relate to or hide from other people. If we believe that God cannot love us, but can only tolerate us, it shapes our life. If we believe that we are more messed up and broken than the next person, it shapes our life. If we believe that burdens that are too heavy to bear have to be borne for the sake of Christ, it crushes our spirit. If we believe lies, there's no health within us. Believing a lie doesn't make it true. If we imbibe a constant diet of lies, of shame, of self-loathing, we begin to die. We begin to long for death. We begin to think about suicide. Most men live lives of quiet desperation. I believed all those things and it was killing me. Things that I had determined to take to the grave were in fact taking me to the grave. Bad theology kills people. Bad theology does this to people or brings people to this place and has the nerve to call it grace. This is not grace. I do not believe anyone set out to feed me bad theology. Nevertheless, this reflects the place where I find myself. My coping strategy was to work and to be silent. Turns out you can travel decades on stoicism. I don't recommend it. 
It doesn't produce anything much that is good. It keeps you locked into a small place with a small God and it is graceless. After a goodly number of years, I came to a place where I could no longer live with the pain of my life. But I also could not end my life as I believed I would stand before God. There was no escape. There was no way out. I was trapped and feeling trapped is never a good thing. Being raised evangelical, I knew my scriptures and I would fight and argue with God and I would throw his word in his face. You came to give people life more abundant? Well, where is it? Because I cannot live with this. And one verse in particular I, I fought with God over time and time again was Romans chapter 8. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. I threw that in God's face more times than I can remember. Uh, your glory must be pretty special if it isn't worthy to, if our sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to it. When this suffering, I cannot live with it. I couldn't end my life, yet I did not want to live. Uh, I didn't want to be alive. Most men live lives of quiet desperation. Can I say to anyone here, thinking about ending their life, choosing to remain alive is to remain open to the possibility of encountering a grace in this life that can transform your life from where you are now, that can turn longings for death into living freely and happily. I reckon that I should try therapy with, of course, a Christian therapist before I progressed my thinking on suicide. We talked a lot about lies and truth. David in the Psalms tells us that God desires truth in the inner parts or the inner being. Jesus himself told his disciples, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And he makes this preposterous claim of himself being the way, the truth and the life. Could it be that truth is embodied in a person, in Jesus? The truth is for me that I can't get away from him, even when I want to. Something always brings me back to him. So as I say, I found a therapist and started the painful work of repentance. Repentance used to mean you must try harder to sin less. Well, good luck with that because all it does is set us up for failure and then to feel even worse about ourselves. Paul tells the Romans to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the hymn writer puts it beautifully, reclothe us in our rightful mind. To me, repentance is the long, slow, glorious work of identifying lies that we have believed, lies that I believed and believed to be truth, and exchanging those lies for actual truths. And how do you know that these new truths are actual truths? I think by the fruit of what we see in our lives, 
what do, they, what do these truths produce within us? Authentic truths set us free. They cause us to grow. They make us more authentically ourselves and somehow too more like Jesus, increasing our ability to love and love freely. When you have believed lies for decades, exchanging them for truths is a painful and prolonged process. It's a lifelong process. Is it any wonder that the scriptures refer to Satan as the father of lies, the father of distortions that we believe and that take us to places like this? But we are God's workmanship and not our own. So you'll appreciate this is a deep journey that, uh, that I was on. I suspect that all profound journeys of faith are deep personal journeys. For me, it was a bit like the parable of the lost sheep in reverse. Only this time, the shepherd took the sheep out of the flock for its own welfare. Or you can be a lost sheep within the flock. Jesus loved me enough to rescue me from the church. My journey began in fear and trembling, literal fear and trembling, fear of the unknown, fear of what I would become, fear of where I would end up. But in making this journey of exchanging lies for truth, I began to discover that God was still with me, creating circumstances or coincidences, if you like, that spoke of God's presence, God's concern, God's provision, God's love. And more than that, I discovered that there is a really playful aspect to God that my earlier faith life never knew or never had room for. But God began doing things that I found absolutely hilarious and wonderfully reassuring. At times it was almost as if Jesus was saying, are you coming out to play? I'll be kind of the second image, please. This is the second image I wanted to share with you. It's called the Freedom Sculpture, and it's by Zenos Fridakis, and it's found in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. This sculpture to me represents the work of grace and good theology. It represents to me the work of Jesus calling people out from places which restrict their ability to move, setting people free with nothing on their backs weighing them down or crushing them. It represents my story. Truth does set us free. He really does. I believe we need to be people of the truth, people who speak truth to each other and to ourselves. I believe the world needs people of the truth. And so my prayer today is this, that I, that we, both as individuals and as a congregation, may always be able to hear, metaphorically, Jesus knocking. Knocking on the door of our hearts to come full circle to my evangelical roots. And saying, are you coming out to play? Thank you. The second reading. John chapter 4 verses 7 to 29 Jesus and the woman of Samaria a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her give me a drink his disciples had gone to the city to buy food 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew, <coughs> sorry, if you knew the gift of God, knew it is that saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our, our, our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in, truth and, in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Jesus. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? Amen. I'm also going to go back into my personal history quite a long way. When I left school, many years ago now, I went to teach a training college because I wanted to be a religious education teacher. Things were different then. If you went to, wanted to teach, you went to a training college. And I was fortunate enough to be offered a place at a small college where some of the most forward thinking about religious education was happening. Many people warned me, you're going to study theology, that's going to run circles round your faith. Actually, it didn't. My father, although a scientist, also had a degree in theology and was very widely read. So I was able to discuss any issues and theological questions with him. What did throw me though, was my encounter with a certain group of very fundamentalist Christians, many of whom were on the same course as I was. 
I'd been brought up in a totally committed Christian family whose basic premise was to live out one's faith in practical Christian service. And although branches of the extended family were Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, as well as Baptist, I had never before encountered such extreme fundamentalism as I did at college. I tried to understand it and learn from it, but it was a real struggle. This was an era of Pentecostalist charismatic revival. And one thing I was told was I couldn't possibly be a real Christian because I didn't speak in tongues. So I went to their prayer meetings and listened to the babbling voices. I knew some people were faking the experience in order to be accepted by the group. They told me so. But in the end, I came to the conclusion that maybe some people needed this kind of experience in order to confirm their faith, but it had absolutely no meaning or function for me. I had long been a Christian, a committed Christian, probably all my life, like Dermot, when you're brought up in a Christian family, there's no particular time of commitment. I'd been baptized when I was 12 years old, under special dispensation from the church because of my extreme youth. I deeply meant it as far as I was able at that age. But at college, I just couldn't go along with those fundamentalists. Their faith seemed to be all show and no action, all razzmatazz and no depth. However, their influence was really pervasive, and I began to feel that I couldn't continue as a Christian if this was what it was all about. I came to think that if there was a God at all, he was so far removed from real life as to be totally irrelevant. And as teaching RE in those days was all about teaching Christianity, it's moved on since then, I also began to feel I would be a fraud if I attempted to teach the subject, thinking as I was beginning to. So I applied to and was accepted by VSO, Voluntary Service Overseas, to work with them for a couple of years, hoping that during that time matters would resolve themselves and I would know a bit more about where I stood. So, in the September, after finishing my course, I found myself on the edge of the Sahara Desert in a town called Maiduguri in northeastern Nigeria, working in the government-run Women's Teachers College, having just completed my own teacher training. Students spent, spent five years at the college. The first three were general secondary education, and the final two specialized in teacher training. After a week or so on the college campus, staying with other expatriate staff, my VSO colleague and I were moved into a house on what was called the GRA, the Government Residential Area, an area of accommodation provided for government employees. It was a little distance out of town and away from the college campus. 
We were due to be provided with Honda motorbikes, but they hadn't yet arrived. They did come a couple of months later. But initially, we were dependent on other staff with cars to fetch and carry us. We also had a houseboy, rather a misnomer for an elderly man who cooked and cleaned for us. But we only had a wood stove on which to cook and we failed dismally to even manage to light this stove. One morning, the houseboy arrived on his bicycle very late and looking dreadfully flustered. Oh, madam, he said, very bad, very bad. His English was extremely limited, so we didn't understand what had happened. But soon one of the other teachers appeared in her car to collect us and we slowly began to piece together what had happened. The night before, a signal had been given on the radio programme listened to by the whole of Ni northern Nigeria. And on this pre-arranged signal, groups of armed men had gone through the town to the previously identified homes of those of the Igbo tribe, people from the southeastern part of Nigeria. These people were generally very well educated, having welcomed the education brought by Westerners, which had often been rejected by the Northern tribes who were more likely to be Muslim. So the Igbos usually held the more responsible and well-paid jobs and were resented by the Northerners. This is probably a rather simplistic explanation, but there isn't time to go into a lot of political detail. Put simply, there had been a massacre during the night. The families living on either side of us and the family opposite had all disappeared. We didn't know whether they were murdered or whether they had managed to escape. We'd heard nothing. The hospital stopped counting at 300 bodies. Some 1,000 people had gone to the police for protection and were told they could stay in the prison where the doors were locked behind them, but no food or drink was provided. Others tried to take a train back down to the east, but every train was stopped en route while the murdering gangs pulled out and killed any Igbo they could find. Parents sent their children to school in the morning, hoping they would be safe there. Only the church schools accepted Igbo children, as the government institutions had long been closed to anyone other than Northerners. But the gangs went into each classroom in these church schools, killing any Igbo teacher and then moving up and down the rows of children, doing the same for any Igbo child. A year later, I went to supervise our students doing teaching practice in one of these schools. And as you can well imagine, the remaining pupils, non-Igbo pupils, were still totally traumatized. My VSO colleague and I were quickly moved back onto the compound. At this stage, we didn't know whether the violence would remain aimed at the Igbos 
or would extend to other tribes, nationalities or religions. I remember one of the students, who was from a minority Christian tribe in the north, expressing great concern lest it should become a religious war. It made me think. I too would be classed as a Christian. I too might be in danger. It's interesting to note that now, over 55 years later, Maiduguri is the key town for the Muslim fanatical group Boko Haram, which is abducting children from Christian schools. Is there any connection? I've no idea, but maybe there is. But then it was a very disturbing time, as you may imagine. As the Igbos had run everything, everything now stopped functioning. No electricity, no water, no supermarket-style food shops, only small local stalls selling a few basic locally produced foods. No communication with the outside world as the airport and the railway station closed. No postal or telephone service. It was 360 miles to the next town. That's the length of England to give you some idea of the distance. There was a road of sorts, but most of it had no tarmac and was merely dusty sand. During this period, it became very clear to me that the only people doing anything to help were the Christians. One of our staff, a Canadian, organized groups of senior students to take quantities of food and water to those sheltering in the prison. And the missionaries were running around in their cars trying to rescue any Igbos who had managed to escape the massacre and to get them out to safety. There were very few local Christians. It was a very intense Muslim area. But it made me start to think, maybe there is something more to this Christianity business after all. Maybe those who are the true Christians are those like the missionaries in Maiduguri, like my parents who put their faith into practice. And slowly I made my way back into belief. And although I've had many struggles and questions and issues to deal with since then, my faith has remained intact. God has remained there, a real presence for me. And yes, I did make my way back to teaching religious education and spent most of my life doing that very same job. Lord our God, as we come before you now, we realize that the story of this world is a story of strife, of trouble, of conflict, of hatred, of injustice. There are wars in Ukraine, in Yemen and Myanmar. 
We pray that those who exercise power in this world may realise that the power they have comes from you, that one day they will answer to the King of Kings for the power that has been given to them. May they seek to govern justly and fairly. May they seek to bring peace. May we seek to do justice and to love mercy. May we seek to stand up for the oppressed. We pray for those affected by climate change, those affected by heat waves and floods even this week, and those affected by famine. How can it be that there should be famine in a world where there is enough for all? May we seek to ensure that food and resources are distributed fairly, that all may have a, a place at the feast. May we make decisions ourselves to change things, to use things carefully, and may we pressure those in power that they might bring about change. O oh Lord, hear our prayer. We remember, Lord God, the story of the church. The church go global throughout the centuries. We pray for the persecuted church. We mourn the injustices done in the name of the church. We mourn the divisions in the church. We pray that the Church of Jesus Christ would be a place of peace, a place of peace with God and a place of peace with one another, a place where we can worship and a light to those around us. We celebrated our anniversary, our church anniversary last week, and we pray for our ministry here. We pray that we might always be enlarging in the table, that all may have a place at the table. We pray for our ministry, for our people, and for our witness to the faith in God. We pray for one another in the church. We pray for Nadia as she and her family returns to Ukraine. We pray for those among us who are caught up in immigration matters. We pray for those who are sick, for those who are infirm, for those who may long, no longer come and be with us. We pray for Jonathan and Fraser as they marry in the church this coming Saturday. God of all love and comfort, meet with each one of us at our time of need. O Lord, hear our prayer. And so, our Lord, we ourselves come before you and pray for ourselves. We each have different stories, some we know, some are told only to our dearest friends, some are in the secrets of our hearts. Help each one of us to tell our story, to give a reason for the hope we have within us. Help us to live as a people of hope 
and faith. Calm our doubts. Settle our worries and anxiety. Give us wisdom in the decisions of life. Comfort us as we grieve and mourn. Be with us in time of sickness. In all times, may we know your presence, your help, your love, and seek to show those things to those around us. O oh Lord, hear my prayer. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord give you peace, now and forever. Amen. Thank you.